National's not promising people $125 a week. Well, They're saying that if you've got two kids across a fortnight, you might get something that's akin to that. This is but see, this is, this is the thing about the National Party. It's all about We're in the thick of it. That's simply not true. All that happens that is, is that production goes A leader's on. debate. Well, it was sort of billed by TVNZ as a boxing match, but it was sort of more of a game of croquet, a little bit dull and a little bit slow. Lots of handshaking and promises on the campaign trail. And a bit of argy bargy. I'm asking for Ben Sebastian! You can try and shout our sound in here. But what if all this makes you feel confused, deflated, or even despondent? What's the point of your vote? What if you back national, but you don't like the look of the minor party? Or vice versa, you're an ardent act supporter, but not national. Or you lean to the left and see that vote as a wasted one. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, strategic voting, tactical voting, splitting your two ticks on the voting form. Believe it or not, more than a third of us do it already. So what exactly is it? Well, Richard Shaw is Professor of Politics at Massey University. All right. Strategic voting is probably more commonly known in this country anyway as split voting. Often that's the way in which uh, a voter manifests a desire that they have to do something other than give both of their votes, the party vote and the constituency vote, to the candidate and the party, which would be their natural preferred option. Um, and that's what we call straight ticket voting. So two ticks for the same party and that party's candidate, that's straight ticket voting. If you split your vote and give your party vote to party A and your constituency vote to the candidate for party B, C or D, that's often what we know as strategic voting. And why would you do that? You would do that for a number of reasons. You you are more likely to do that in Aotearoa, New Zealand, if you are naturally a supporter of a smaller party because you know that the likelihood of your candidate, your party's candidate in your local constituency getting over the line is really low. We've historically been dominated in terms of constituency representation by members of the two major parties, uh, the New Zealand National and Labour parties. There are only three constituency MPs in the current parliament who are not Labour or National MPs. So if you know that your preferred candidate isn't really that viable and you want to prevent your least preferred candidate from winning in your home constituency, you might split your vote that way. That's what you do with your electorate vote. On the party vote, which is the crucial one for determining the composition of parliament, you might want to vote strategically by splitting your vote in order to boost the chances of a particular party getting over that 5% threshold. Or you vote for a party other than the one you would normally vote for in order to keep the party you really don't like out of office. But let's get a reminder of how this two-ticks system came about. One for a party, one for a person. One for a party, one for a person. What are you doing? Practicing. One for a person. Practicing more. MMP. Under the previous system, the the dice were really loaded in favour of the two major parties, irrespective of the amount of support that they had out there amongst the voting public. That changes when we introduce MMP in 1996. And interestingly, at that very first MMP election, from memory, something like 37%, so a third of all voters, split their votes. 
And that has continued to be the case pretty much. Uh, last time round in 2020, it was in the low 30%. So we have quite high levels of strategic voting, higher than tends to be the case in some of the other countries with which we like to compare ourselves. Um, early on, under MMP, a colleague of mine, Jack Vowles, and, and other colleagues from the New Zealand Electoral Study based out of Tehiringawaka, Victoria did quite a lot of research on why people split their votes, because the, the classical argument is that you split your votes because you're confused and you don't know how the voting system works and you just kind of get it wrong. And that's not what they found. What they found here, and I'm not sure if that research has been uh, replicated since, is that New Zealanders are smart people as a rule and we know why we split our votes. Uh, and, and so it's intentional and it's purposive. And you can look around the, the history of, of particularly some of the constituency seats in which that has um, regularly occurred. Epsom comes to mind. Do you want National Party supporters to give their electorate vote to John Banks in Epsom? Well, I'm not telling anyone to vote in a particular way because I don't think it's right for anyone to tell someone how to vote. But what I am saying is that we've had very good constructive working relationships with ACT. Uh, we wouldn't be at all unhappy if they were back in Parliament. And if they decide to tactically uh, vote and split their vote, I wouldn't be at all unhappy about that. Wairiki in 2020, Auckland Central in 2020, uh, in, in both Wairiki and Auckland Central, 30% of people in those constituencies who party voted Labour gave their candidate vote to either Chloe Swarbrick... They said we couldn't do it, but we did. <laughs> ...or Rawiri Waititi. The Māori Party is back! ..in order to make sure that their respective parties had a greater chance of getting into the House. So we tend to know what we're doing. The rates are quite high, and we've always done that under MMP. Yeah, well, well, I'm actually surprised at that figure. So so it means that voters are really thinking about politics and, and about what the various politicians and what the parties stand for. Yeah, I like to think that's what it means. Um, it might mean some other things as well. I mean, we, I know what, what the conversation that we're having and the conversation that most people are having at this time of the electoral cycle has to do with who's going to form the next government. But one of the things about our constitutional and electoral arrangements is is that when we uh, go into cast an advance ballot on the 2nd or the 3rd of October, or we go in on the big day and we cast our two votes, we're not directly voting for a government. We are not voting for a prime minister. We do not directly elect members of the cabinet. What we're voting for is a parliament or a legislature. And for some people, Voting can be an expressive act. They vote as much with their hearts as they do with their heads because they've got a long attachment to this person or that particular party. And there are. it is also the case that for many people, the composition of the parliament in, in descriptive terms, in demographic terms, is really important as well. So you have... You know, you have people who vote for a person because they like the look of that person. They want more of those people in the New Zealand Parliament. They want a more diverse and a more a more interesting looking parliament and one that better reflects the demographic diversity of the country today. What What do you think is different this election to previous elections? Is Is it the rise of of the minor parties? Is it that? that will influence people's strategic voting? Yep, I think it will, but I, but I don't know that that's all that different. I think that has been the case for some time. 2020 was a wee bit of an anomaly. 
Um, and one example of that is that you had a, a certain proportion of people who would ordinarily vote national who gave their party vote to the Labour Party under the leadership of the former Prime Minister, Dame Jacinda Ardern. Tonight, New Zealand has shown the Labour Party its greatest support in at least 50 years. But who gave their constituency vote to a to a national party candidate? So you had higher levels of, of split voting amongst national party people than would ordinarily be the case. Higher than will be the case this time around, I think. Yeah, that's an interesting question because the combined vote share, so the popularity amongst voters of national and Labour, if you if if we're going on current polls, is in the sort of mid to high sixty percent, which is relatively low historically. But that combined vote share has been been slipping over the years, 2020 aside, and you're more likely to have split voting in a in a highly contested electoral landscape. So, that, so the the greater the popularity of parties other than National and Labour, the more likely we are to see party uh, voters looking to split their votes. Simply because the the likelihood of one of the two big parties forming a government by themselves is reduced. I mean, it's only happened once in the 10 elections or so that we've had under MMP, and that was um, that was 2020, unlikely to happen again anytime soon. So, yeah, the minor parties become really significant, both, both as far as the sort of colour of the New Zealand parliament is concerned, but also the process of government formation, which happens after the election. Here's a question that's sort of out of left field, but why would someone decide to vote for top. A new poll out tonight reveals a steep climb for the Opportunities Party in their bid to become the newest party in Parliament. What would be the point? Because even if they got enough votes to win the Ilam electorate, are we really going to hear from them from one representative in Parliament? Top wants to turn Ilam Teal, its only realistic opportunity to break into Parliament. Absolutely critical. I mean, we, we've decided we needed to focus on Ilam. As a small party, I think getting in through an electorate seat is much more viable. Um, let's talk a little bit about David Seymour. The only time that the ACT Party has, since 2002, the only time that the ACT Party has cleared the 5% threshold was in 2020. I think that's right, when they, they pulled 7.6% of the vote. And the reason why the ACT Party constitute the threat uh, that they do to National this time round is because the National Party and the ACT Party entered into a series of arrangements over a long period of time, which essentially ensured that Epsom remained a safe seat for the ACT Party in considerable measure because people who would ordinarily have given their constituency vote to the National Party's candidate, Paul Goldsmith, for a long period of time, gave it to David Seymour instead, just to ensure that there was that little bit of insurance. And now ACT is more than insurance. Now ACT are on the right of the National Party, and whilst their polling has dropped away a little bit in the last couple of weeks, they're peeling off urban liberals and disaffected farmers who the National Party might naturally think were theirs, as it were, historically. So that's a long-winded way, Sharon, of saying it, it can matter that there is one person in a parliament because one person might not make a significant amount of difference in one particular parliament, but over a longer period of time, if their presence is maintained, they become something else. I think the Māori Party is, an, is another example of why you might want to have a smaller parliament in there because it represents a voice or a particular view of things which uh, 
is considered to be important by some voters, irrespective of the probability or otherwise that they will form part of the parliament. We have gone places and we have said things that no other political party could ever say for our people. And it is our time to take our rightful place as Tamata Fenua in parliament. So it's not just about influencing government. There's a lot of policy that is produced by the New Zealand Parliament, which is not necessarily government policy. And you may be the kind of person who thinks that it's important for you that tops voice one voice out of 120 or maybe 121 if we have an overhang parliament. It's important that that voice is in there because you never quite know what's going to happen to that voice over the long term. Is there such a thing as wasting your vote? Classically, a wasted vote is any vote for anyone other than the winning candidate, but it can also refer to the votes that are cast for the winning candidate that are surplus to the requirements to win. So in a constituency battle, you simply need a plurality. You need you need one vote more than the second highest ranking candidate, and any votes that you accrue above and beyond that have no influence as far as the winning candidate is concerned. But on the party vote side, a wasted vote on the party vote is, a, is, is the vote that goes to a party that doesn't make the 5% threshold. And in 2020, that comprised seven, just over 7% of all votes. No, no, it's not clumsy terminology. Wasted, it's a, it's a pejorative term. And I'm not sure that it's the most helpful term because it suggests that the vote is worthless. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, if you cast a vote and it's an expressive act, it reflects your views about things. The fact that it doesn't necessarily go to the person who wins is not indicative of the fact that it is wasted. It's only unnecessary in the sense that it doesn't influence the result of the allocation of parliamentary seats. So what is on voters' minds? How much do they really know when they go to tick the two boxes on the ballot form? Well, Ollie Nees is the editorial director of the website Policy NZ that offers a guide to the election. And some of the stuff it reveals about the parties and voters is pretty surprising, including how many people go in search of information. Well, at the last election, um, which is the last election we have full data for, um, we had around about 500,000 different users overall. So that's the equivalent roughly of about you know one in six voters. Um, this election we're on on track to, to see similar numbers. So every day we're seeing you know thousands of people from across New Zealand logging on to to take a look and. Some of some people just pop on to have a quick look at one one topic that interests them, but we also see some users who are pretty committed, um, who spend literally hours and hours and hours going through every single page, reviewing hundreds of policies um, to make up their mind, which is pretty extraordinary. It is. <laughs> what do you know about these people who go to your website? How much information do you get about them? Well, we know very little actually, and that's because you know information about voting is quite obviously very private and so people can use the policy nz tool to favorite the policies they like um, and kind of create a personalized list of their favorite policies so for that reason we adopt a very cautious approach to collecting information about our users so people can go onto your website and what can they do a search or they go to a certain electorate or they what do people tend to do so there's three ways to use the tool. One, you can look at, go topic by topic and see summaries of the party's policies. And there's 74 topics across the website. Wow. So pretty much everything that you can you can think of. 
You can also browse electorate by electorate. So you can put in your address, find your electorate, whether that's a general electorate or a Māori electorate, and you can see um, profiles of the candidates. And that information is sourced by us surveying all candidates directly. Uh, and then you can also see profiles of each of the um, parties that are running in the election um, with a full breakdown of their party lists. Have you noticed any thing different this time around compared with 2020? There's definitely been a a difference in terms of the um, policy areas that are getting emphasis. I think last time around, obviously COVID-19 was a big one, but also housing was very significant. This time around, there hasn't been a huge number of housing announcements. Um, However, cost of living issues, so incomes, policies, changes to tax rates, that's very big this election. Uh, and also, I think, um, proposals to change the way things like infrastructure uh, and, and the resource management system system works. Those are areas where we're seeing a lot of policy announcements and proposed changes. I've been talking to uh, Richard Shaw about strategic voting or split voting, it tends to be called here. Does this give you any pointers on what people are doing in terms of strategic voting? Because we do have a high number of voters who who do split their votes? Well, from Policy NZ, obviously we can't see which way people are voting. Um, But I think for people, um, it certainly does help, uh, I think, in an MMP environment where people often are weighing up different considerations uh, and possibly considering to vote for different parties. I think it's because, you know, minor parties can play a really important role uh, in governments and in coalition negotiations. And so even if you think you're not going to vote for that party, it can be useful to know, well, actually, what is this minor party that's going to hold the balance of the power actually propose Mm. um, and what might they get in coalition negotiations? And I see that Policy NZ has actually branched out into international partnerships for overseas elections. I think there's a growing demand for information like this. You know, at the moment when there's, I think, increasing concern about misinformation, people are increasingly wondering whether they can trust everything they read. So I think sources of information that just set it out clearly um, are increasingly valuable to people. That said, you know, yes, I've um, been a part of the team that's made this tool. Clearly policy is important, but it's, it's not the only thing. Uh, And I think parties, when elected to government, won't enact all their policies, but also they have to respond to unforeseen circumstances. And no matter what their manifesto says, you won't know how they're going to respond. So that's when I think it's also important to consider things like, who does this party represent? Does this represent people like me or does this represent something else? Okay, question for political nerds. Which parties have the most policies? Surely the biggest, National and Labour. Wrong, says Ollie. The minor parties in Parliament, such as the Greens and ACT, tend to have by far and away the most policies. And I think this tells us something about the the reason in which policies are announced. They're not always just announced because they are just a straightforward commitment. Sometimes they're used as a way to, I guess, get attention. And if you're, you know, Labour or National, you don't need to do a lot to get... um, attention in in the media. But if you're a smaller party, often having an announcement um, is a good way to um, get into the conversation. Who has the most policies? I'm pretty sure it's the Green Party, followed by ACT. Is it? It is. And certainly um, Labour's a long way down there, but that was the same with the National in 2017, I think. For parties that are currently in government, they tend to have less announcements. 
in large part because they're campaigning on what they've done in office already. So they will announce a few few policies as, I guess, a sweetener or an indication of the direction they want to go. Um, but if you are in opposition or out of parliament, uh, you're more likely to um, announce a whole lot more because you are obviously proposing a change of direction. Yeah. What about New Zealand First? New Zealand First has a very specific um, policy style. They tend to have just a long list of quite brief policy commitments. So by contrast, the Greens release quite long documents um, with a lot of explanation. New Zealand First tends to have uh, short propositions that are a mixture between very local, localised, like commitments to, for example, build an aerodrome at Dargaville, um, and then um, very broad statements about um, big, big kind of general directions of travel. We haven't yet seen a third party, what we used to call the minor parties. We haven't yet seen one really break through and kick on to the sort of 15, 17, 20% margin of vote at an election yet. Mm. But it will happen. It will happen? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think the, I think what we are seeing is the slow distribution of political support away from the two major parties, that, that combined vote share, depending on what it is on October the 15th, it just looks to be softening a little bit gradually over time that the strength of people's party attachment is less than it was a couple of generations ago, and that opens up the prospect for smaller parties to find their way into the political spectrum. What would you say to young people, to first-time voters who tend to vote left, and they might be looking at the polls right now and thinking, well, what's, what's the point really? It's kind of a worry, isn't it? It could be a worry. I'm not sure. I've not seen data indicating that that is the case. It's certainly a theoretical concern. There's been some talk about it in the media. Voting is habit forming. If you if you vote the first time that you are eligible to vote, then you are likely to continue to vote for the rest of your life. And the reverse also applies. If you don't vote the first time you're eligible to, the likelihood of you voting falls quite significantly. So as far as the contribution or the participation of people young or otherwise i don't think this is necessarily just a young person's issue but the the extent to which we contribute in the democratic processes that we have in this country voting is really significant it's also it's simply significant because governments do stuff and governments have consequences for people's lives so it matters who forms the government by not voting all you are doing is increasing the likelihood that the other guys will form a stronger government and you are reducing the likelihood that you will your your people, whoever they are, will comprise an effective opposition in the parliament and position themselves for subsequent elections. So it's not a course of action that I'd recommend one way or another. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Professor Richard Shaw and Ollie Knees. Kakite. <laughs>